Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, do you remember the uh, myth of arachne? Oh, yes, I do. With fondness. Uh, it's a great one, right? Yeah. Because it, 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 it follows a familiar pattern, right? You begin with uh, a particularly skilled human, right? A great mortal that has uh, just a you know wondrous talent at her disposal. Mm-hmm. Arachne. She's just a wonderful weaver. She's an expert weaver. She just creates these beautiful tapestries, right? Puffed up with pride, I bet. Ah, but of course, yeah. In fact, she ends up uh, boasting of her skills, and either, depending on which account you're looking at, either she actually uh, challenges Athena, the goddess of wisdom and crafts, to a weaving competition, or she just kind of uh, talks about how great she is and how she's better than Athena until Athena steps up and uh, you know and, and accepts this uh, challenge. And, of course, this is a terrible idea, right? You're going up against a god who basically, like, pickaxed her way out of Zeus's brain, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, like, all the Greek gods are, are, are basically terrible. I mean, they're, they're vain, they're petty, they're powerful, and, uh, and yet she ends up in this competition, and then it just gets, it gets even worse from there. Um, in Ovid's uh, telling, uh, Athena's resulting tapestry illustrates past incidents uh, where the gods punished mor- mortals for their arrogance. So, and, uh, and then Arachne responds by weaving in um, accounts of just how massively uh, abusive and, and just what kind of misleading jerks the gods are towards humans. So it, depending on which account you look at, either... Athena wins because she is a god, and no matter how great your mortal skill, you're going to get trumped by a god. Or um, Athena notices that Arachne's skill is actually superior to hers, and out of spite, she just kind of rage quits the entire competition. And in either case, she curses Athena and her descendants for forever, turning them into these uh, minuscule, web-slinging arachnids that we know and love today. And what is interesting about that is that in some ways, humans are still trying to extend out this metaphor of trying to manipulate nature for their own gain Mm -hmm. or go up against it. So here's one from way back, and then we'll talk more recently how we've been trying to do this. All right, so we have one Francois-Xavier Bonsahelaire, who, it turns out, took silk and he tried to do what the gods, what nature did, and he tried to extract it and weave it. And in fact, he took the silk, he boiled their cocoons, extracting the threads with combs to make socks and gloves. And then in the early 19th century, along came Jesuit priest Raimondo Maria Tremer, who discovered that threads extracted from the spider itself produce a higher quality silk. And there's an 1807 engraving showing his extraction device, and we're looking at it right now. (laughs) Um, It kind of looks like a spider guillotine. Yeah, right? it does. It looks a little nefarious. Uh, like I'm, I'm instantly sympathizing with the spider here. Yeah, because you see that its head is trapped in there, this little half-moon device. It's tiny, and its abdomen is hanging out. And there's a winding machine drawing out a continuous strand from it. Yeah, which instantly makes me think of the paintings of the, the windlass of Erasmus, the, uh, the the spindle that was used to draw uh, Erasmus's guts out of his body. Yes. So it's, it looks very much like a torture instrument. Yes, you're right. It is very nefarious looking. But it's illustrative of the fact that even with this tiny device, it's incredibly labor intensive. 
And while we now have the technology to make this an easier process and we have synthetic materials that, that try to mimic silk, we humans are still laboring, still pulling at the strings of silk. But now it's not in service of our sartorial desires. It's in service of what we might think of as our scientific desires. Yeah, but still, Arachne, uh, she doesn't give up her secrets easily. No, she does not. So in this episode, we're going to talk a bit about uh, what silk is, what spider silk in particular is, and why it's such a a stellar um, engineering feat. And then we're going to talk about the various ways that... uh, that, he, that humans uh, continue to try and, and, and grasp that secret of the silk from the spiders, how, to, how we try to mimic it, and all the various uh, uh, uses that we have for it in our modern scientific world. That's right. And it's not just spiders. The silkworms, yes. so, of course, are a huge fixture in this. That's right, because we uh, start off by just talking about what silk is. And in defining silk, we really need to start more on the insect side of things uh, than the arachnid. Uh, for the most part, silk is a fine, continuous protein fiber produced by various insect larvae for cocoons. Uh, and it's really only produced by a few groups in the insect world, uh, and we also refer to silk as a biopolymer. Now, in insects, silk originates as a stored protein liquid in modified saliva glands located in the insect's head. From here, it transports via small tubes to the spinneret, uh, a structure that protrudes beneath the mouth parts on the underside of the head of a given insect. Uh, in the case of spiders, however, as we'll discuss, the spinneret is backloaded on the end of the abdomen uh, instead. Uh, and we'll get to the spiders in a bit, but as far as the insects go, the most common use, again, is cocooning. That's to contain and protect a defenseless pupil stage of the uh, the insect or and or to hold it in place on a leaf or a stem. Uh, and also some moths build tents out of the, uh, the material as well. A uh, cocoon is spun from a single thread of silk. It might be just pure silk, depending on the species, or it might uh, involve bits of soil or leaf litter uh, that are caught up in the uh, silk strand as well. Now let's look a little closer at the silkworm, which is the larva or caterpillar of the domesticated silk moth called Bombyx mori, which is Latin for silkworm of the mulberry tree. In fact, there's a Chinese proverb that says, with time and patience, the mulberry leaf becomes a silk gown. Now, the silkworm was once native to China, but now is completely domesticated. One cocoon consists of a single thread that is about 1,000 to 3,000 feet long. That's 300 to 900 meters. And the manipulation of silkworm the domestication goes back 4,700 years, and there's a legend that Lei Zhu, wife of the Yellow Emperor, was drinking tea when a cocoon fell from a mulberry tree into her steaming cup of tea and began to unravel. Ah. Yes, and she was amazed by its luminosity and its strength, and she gathered more and made silk. And China began to export silk in 200 BCE, so much so that the Silk Road, the famous network of trade routes, was created and stretched from China to the Mediterranean, Africa, and Middle East and Europe. And the origin of silk was really closely guarded, right? Because this was the this is the lifeblood of China at the time. But in 550 CE, some some wily sly monks who had traveled to China brought back silkworm eggs and. You know, the West was forever changed with silk at its disposal. Indeed. Now, 
as great as uh, insect silk is, as great as the silkworm silk is, none of these guys can really match the arachnids in terms of just pure engineering genius of the thread. Um, I mean, they're just in a class all their own. So the, the thing about the spiders, as we've alluded to, is that scientists are continuing to study spider silk making and, uh, and trying to get all the valuable details out of it. And we still have a lot of questions regarding exactly how it all comes together. Um, but here are the basics as we understand it. Spiders, like, like insects, um, like the silkworms, have a special, special glands that secrete silk proteins dissolved in a water-based solution. The spider pushes the liquid solution through long ducts, leading to microscopic uh, spigots on the spider's spinnerets. And generally, there are two or three spinneret pairs located at the rear of the abdomen. Furthermore, each spigot has a valve that controls the thickness and speed of the extruded material. So already we're, we're seeing like these different layers of complexity uh, that are in play when it comes to just pushing out that, that layer of silk. I think it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking of spider silk as kind of like silly string, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's just a gland, they squeeze it out, and they just squeeze out this thread. And yes, there's some sort of a, you know, a hardening of the liquid as it comes out, but we think, well, there's nothing more to that. But really, we're talking about a, a really intense engineering feat just at the, the, the construction of the material itself. As the spigots pull these silk molecules out of the ducts and extrude them, in, extrude them into the air, the molecules are stretched out and linked together to form long strands. And then the spinnerets wind the strands together to form the sturdy silk fiber itself. And this is where it gets even crazier because most spiders have multiple silk glands in their body which secrete different types of silk material optimized for different purposes. By winding different silk varieties together in varying proportions, uh, spiders can form a wide range of fiber material. So it's not just one type of spider, uh, spider silk that's coming out. There are varying spider silks depending on what their purpose is. Uh, they can vary fiber consistency by adjusting the spigots from smaller to larger strands. And uh, sometimes they'll create a silk strand consisting of an inner core with an outer tube around it. Uh, and they might apply various coatings, such as a waterproof coating or a sticky layer, uh, depending on what the use is. So, uh, so again, when it comes to spider silk, it, when they're creating it, the, the purpose of the silk is, is, uh, is reflected in the actual construction of the silk thread itself. Which is amazing, especially if you bump this up against the silkworm. And nothing against mm-hmm. the silkworm. They're doing a pretty cool job there with making their cocoon, right? But right. that's sort of like... Here's this one thing I can do, whereas a spider is more like its own 3D printer. Exactly. Right? That's, I think that's a, a fabulous uh, comparison. Yeah, I mean, it's varying the type of product that it's creating. And the best way to really examine this is to look at the anatomy of a web. Because remember, above all else, spiders are predators. And so they've come up with this elaborate way to catch their dinners. Now, they will initially just cast a silk line out into the wind, and when it senses that it's caught upon something, it will cinch a starting point and use that connection as a bridge, walking across it as it creates a loose silk hanging from the starting and ending points of this bridge it's created. So at that point, it pulls down this silk tie, and it creates a kind of Y configuration. It then creates anchor points and structural threads, laying out radius points from the center of the web of the threads. So then you have the various different types of thread being spun here. You have a non-stick auxiliary spiral that's created 
as well as a second sticky auxiliary one. So the spider has its own smooth path to, to tread upon while ensuring that the web is good and sticky elsewhere. And there are various, I mean, there are tons of different types of webs and it's dizzying in their complexity, right? They're beautiful to look at. But one that I wanted to point out is not even functioning as a true web. And this is uh, via trapdoor spiders who use their webs in a really ingenious way. First, they dig a tunnel, which they smooth out with a mixture of saliva and earth. Then they fit the opening to the tunnel with a trap door, and it's made out of spider silk, and it can be fitted exactly to the dimensions with a beveled edge. Like, that's craftsmanship. (laughs) Or it can just have a sheet of silk and dirt, and then the top of the trap door is tricked out with debris so that it easily blends in. So this tunnel gives the spider a refuge. It also gives them a place to raise their young in. And it also, in, in the background, serves as this device to let the spider know that, you know, there's prey around. And it does this, that trap door, by vibrating. And once the spider detects that, it can easily rush out, pull in that prey into its hole, and then chomp on it. And it's kind of, we were talking about it earlier, I was like, I'm a little bit, uh, I kind of don't want to necessarily put this upon the spider, the trapdoor spider, but it feels a, a little bit serial killer to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that's kind of the vibe of the spider, right? Yeah. Now, um, as you mentioned, there are various uh, uses for the uh, the silk material, various structures that are created by the spiders, and we discussed some of those in our episode, It's a Trap, uh, which I'll include a link to on the landing page for this episode. But these structures are amazing, and... The uh, the level of engineering is is uh, is evident not only in the the structure of the um, of, that they create out of the webbing, but again uh, in the uh, the minute structure of the strands themselves. Uh, spider silk is is uh, is a particularly great uh, engineering uh, uh, substance because it's incredibly strong, but it's also incredibly flexible. Uh, there's some varieties that are reportedly five times as strong as an equal mass of steel and twice as strong as an equal mass of Kevlar. So, again, it rivals some of our, our, our key tough materials that we as humans wield in the world around us. Now, to understand you know, why it's so strong, we have to look uh, at the molecular construction of spider silk itself. According to a 2008 study from MIT, the strength lies in the specific geometric configuration of structural proteins. Uh, which uh, have small clusters of weak hydrogen bonds that work cooperatively to resist force and dissipate energy. 2012, uh, University of California Riverside study identified the genes and determined the DNA sequence for two key proteins in the dragline silk of the black widow spider. And and you'll often see the dragline silk as a focus point uh, in uh, various studies because this serves as the bridge. It has to be really strong. So this is the primo material when it comes to spider silk. Uh, And it turns out this dragline silk is a composite material comprised of two different proteins, each containing three regions with distinct properties. So you have an an amorphous, non-crystalline matrix that's stretchable, giving the silk elasticity. And then embedded in the amorphous portions of both proteins are two kinds of crystalline regions that toughen the silk. So the resulting composite is strong, tough, yet elastic. And and again, it's it's there in just the, the minute construction of the thread itself. 
And we humans see it, we admire it, and we want it. Yes. Uh, but commercial production of spider silk from spiders is impractical because spiders are jerks, right? They're, yeah. they're too cannibalistic and territorial for farming. They're not really jerks, but, you know, they're just not ideal for that purpose. Uh, and researchers have looked to other organisms, including bacteria, insects, mammals, and plants. But those proteins require mechanical spinning and this is a task that our friend the silkworm performs naturally with those nifty spinnerets. So so what's a researcher to do? Well, let's look at Malcolm Fraser Jr., who in 2012, with his team, created a hybrid silkworm to do their bidding, uh, one with both silkworm and spider silk proteins. And results showed that taking these two proteins... Um, would result in a tougher than typical silkworm silk. It would be as tough as dragline silk. Um, it, it would be just the right material that you would want to try to commercially produce. So why would you do this? Why would you commercially produce it? Um, we'll discuss other instances in which you can use it, but when they were looking at it for this purpose, it was for wound dressings, artificial ligaments, tendons, tissue scaffolds, microcapsules, cosmetics, and textiles. Okay. Now, while some of you have probably heard of these uh, transgenic silkworms, I bet even more of you remember the transgenic spider-goat hybrid. <laughs> because this really uh, made the rounds, especially back in 2002, uh, instantly bringing to mind and uh, and probably to digital reality poorly photoshopped images of a goat with like big spider legs coming out of its sides. Right? That was photoshopped? Uh, yeah, because <laughs> the, the real transgenic uh, goat-spider hybrid just looks like a goat. Um, this, again, this happened back in 2002. Researchers at Nexia Biotechnologies genetically modified goats using silk-producing genes from spiders, which, on just a headline level back in uh, 2002, it, it, of course, instantly sounds Frankenstein-y, right? Like, who are these scientists and why are they trying to make goat spiders? Um, but... At this point in the podcast, I think everyone understands what they were going for. The idea was that uh, you would have a small number of goats that would be able to produce a large amount of silk material in their milk, which could then be used uh, in uh, you know various uh, then could be utilized for various purposes, as we'll discuss. Um, essentially, they would be the goats would be creating dragline milk. Now, the strands that they produced were only 20 to 40% as strong as natural spider silk, but still, it's a start, right? Uh, and, it, and at their height, uh, Nexia's Montreal flock had nearly 50 spider goats total. Uh, but the company went bankrupt in 2009, so you had a couple of uh, transgenic goats that went to uh, the uh, Canadian Agricultural Museum, while uh, the rest of them went to Utah State University, where they're they continue to study them to this day and figure out how we can best utilize a spider goat um, for the for the betterment of humanity. Now, that's not the only instance of a company either going bankrupt or just pulling out of the endeavor entirely. And that is because even though you, you have um, information being uncovered and mm-hmm. you have the transgenic, uh, the ability to mess around with this and try to do this in other organisms... You still have to understand the relationship between spider silk structure and its function. And again, a lot of companies have tried to do this. But it wasn't until researchers from Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia took a closer look at the mechanism and tried to uncover some piece of information that might get them a little bit closer. Now, the first step is that they created artificial spider silk 
to replicate the proteins that make up the natural version. In this case, by recombinantly expressing them in the bacterium E. coli. Now, they looked at the key protein in acinoform silk called ACSP1, and they said, okay, it's got three parts. And they said, all right, the protein, most of it is repeated sequences of about 200 amino acids. And there are two tails called the N and C terminal domains that hang off each end of the protein chain. Now, when they took these proteins and they chained them together, they found that the chains weren't working in unison, but rather as independent units. So that was the first clue of how these are actually working within spiders. And it was the C-terminal domain of the protein that was the juncture of the protein that determined the strength of the fiber. So when you're talking about that spider being the architect and choosing a different type of not type of material, but maybe um, consistency or mm-hmm. strength. That's the C-terminal that is controlling that. And this was a huge breakthrough, right? Because it peeled away a layer of mystery, and yet there's still so much <laughs> to be learned in the evolution of spider silk. Yeah, because then we, what do you do with that data then? It just leads to six other questions uh, regarding the engineering process that's taking place there. I guess what you do is you look at it in its in its form right now and say, oh, what can we do with it? Right. And that's uh, really the the examples we're going to look to next in the podcast are really looking more at, at possible uh, ways that we can use the uh, the spider silk and the structure of the spider silk and in some cases the structure of the web itself, how we can mimic that design in various pursuits. According to a 2014 paper from the University of Akron, uh, Spider silk could be used as an inspiration to create more efficient and stronger commercial and biomedical adhesives that could, uh, for example, potentially attach tendons to bones, bind fractures, etc. Anytime you need to uh, bring tissue together and hold it in place firmly. And, uh, and of course, one of the, the advantages here is we'd be using uh, a biosubstance as opposed to uh, something that has to you know, be ejected from the body or taken out at a later date. Uh, in particular, with this particular with this study, uh, they were looking at the attachment discs that spiders use to attach their webs to structures. So the spider uh, pins down an underlying thread of silk with additional threads like stitches or staples on top of it. Um, but the, the real engineering feat here is that the uh, the geometry of the attachment disc, the way that they're actually laying down these strands, it creates a super strong attachment force using very little material so it's you know a perfect economic model uh, to try and uh, and mimic so this uh, this particular team led by UA professor of polymer science Ali Dinawala uh, utilized electrospinning to mimic the efficient staple pin method now electrospinning is a process by which an electrical charge is used to draw very fine fibers from a liquid and in the case of this uh, this uh, particular experiment they were using polyurethane Okay, so uh, again, the, the possible uses here include, you know, binding, uh, uh, you know, tendons back together, binding tendons to bone, binding frac- fractures, etc. And you'd be using material that can degrade and be reabsorbed by the body. Now, that's an example of mending the human body, but spider silk also shows up when you're talking about essentially growing new organs for yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's because you need, when you're talking about growing artificial tissues and organs, you need some kind of structure or substrate for the entity to grow around. And so uh, what could be feather light but formidable enough to provide a framework? Spider webs, of course. 
So you have a group of researchers led by Professor Constantine Agladze, who heads the Laboratory of Biophysics of Excitable Systems at MIPT, and they work specifically on cardiac tissues. Isolating a protein used in web spinning called spidroin, what they did is they seeded isolated neonatal rat cardiac cells on fiber matrices. And during the experiment, the researchers monitored the growth of the cells and they tested their contractibility, right, and their ability to conduct electrical impulses. And these are the main features of normal cardiac tissue. They wanted to see if that could be mimicked in, in the uh, protein. And the monitoring, which was carried out with the help of a microscope and fluorescent markers, showed that within three to five days, a layer of cells formed on the substrate that were able to contract synchronously and conduct electrical impulses, just like the tissue of a living heart would. And this is pretty big news, right? It doesn't mean that we're around the corner from grow your replacement heart clinics, um, but it does mean that it's a, it's a serious step toward making a beating heart out of a few cells. Like, that's going to become an eventual reality. And now you've found the material that's just one more in, in the link to it. It's sounding more and more like the bodies of the future will just be riddled with spider silk. <laughs> and I have another example of it here. Uh, I mean, this one really kind of blew me away because the examples we've looked at so far, they're, they're based in structure, Right. We're looking at the structure of the, the webbing and how it can be used to make attachments, to to create a structure to grow tissue over, etc. Uh, but there were a couple of uh, studies that came out in a 2012 edition of Researchers at Frontiers in Optics, a scientific journal. Uh, they looked at two independent teams, one at Tufts University in Boston and one at CNRS Institute of Physics in France. Uh, and they were looking at ways that uh, this natural spider silk could be used as an eco-friendly alternative to traditional methods of manipulating light. So we're talking about um, an alternative to glass or plastic fiber optics and lenses. Um, why would you want this? Again, it comes back to biomedical technology, right? The placement of sensors and tags or any kind of uh, utilization, utilization of light within the human body. Um, I mean, the, the revelation for me here that um, I just did not realize was that, as it turns out, in addition to being super sturdy and flexible, silk is a gifted light manipulator. And so, so light can travel through silk almost as easily as it flows through uh, through glass fibers. So the potential here hits two key areas. One, implantable biodegradable optics uh, utilized in sensors and tags that are placed inside the body. We've talked about the, the importance of real-time monitoring um, of, our, of, our, of, our, of our body and how that is uh, that can play into better management of our overall health. And another area... Uh, is that uh, you could take this beyond biosensors. You could take a pristine fiber of spider silk and carry light into the body through a very small opening, uh, which would be quite useful for internal imaging or even chemical diagnosis using spectroscopy, which is the analysis of matter based on its interaction with light. So, yeah, just it's amazing to think of this like this tiny little thread of of, uh, of spider silk going in through a tiny hole in mm-hmm. the body and aiding in uh, in diagnosis. That really, to me, is like I think a game changer. Yeah, and amazing to me that the material is being used that way. Yeah, it just again, it just it just uh, drives home just how Im- impressive this material is. 
Yeah, and again, to, just to underscore that uh, impressive durability and strength, let's go back to the spider's drag line. Again, it is the stuff of engineers' dreams, the tensile strength of a high-grade alloy steel, while being a sixth as dense and incredibly flexible. You can draw it out about five times its own length without compromising it. Mm-hmm. So how do you get a spider to do better? How do you ask it to just up its game of Kevlar strength? Okay, we're still silk. trying to actually steal its secrets, but then we're also saying, what can we do to, to, to bump it up? Yeah, we're saying, hey, we know you've perfected this over <laughs> 400 million years of evolution, but do you think right now you could do something to increase the durability? Well, of course, uh, what we're talking about here is some researchers. In this case, we're talking about Nicola Pugno at the University of Trento in Italy and his team, who took some cellar spiders, who are also known as fulcidae, and the site spiderhugger.com, by the way, describes these spiders as, quote, looking like something made out of mini marshmallows and pipe cleaners. So the researchers took these cellar spiders, and they doused the spiders with either water-containing carbon nanotubes or graphene flakes. Now, two materials that are both really, really strong, right? Mm -hmm. So this is an attempt to sort of... uh, to supersize the strength of the of the spider and sort of make it into its own little spider superhero. Uh, they checked out the spider's handiwork after they did this. For each strand of silk, they fixed the fiber between two C-shaped cardboard holders and placed it in a device that can measure the load on a fiber with a resolution of 15 nanonewtons and any fiber displacement with a resolution of a 0.1 nanometers. Okay, so in other words, they're very serious about the tensile strength here. Mm-hmm. And Pugno wrote that the thread is the highest toughness modulus for a fiber, surpassing synthetic polymeric high-performance fibers like Kevlar 49 and even the current toughest knotted fibers. So what was amazing about that is not only uh, was the thread tougher than before, right? Tougher than Kevlar, tougher than its own natural uh, tensile strength, but they could find the actual uh, carbon nanotubes in it. They just weren't sure of how it was happening. At first they thought, well, maybe they were taking it and spreading it onto the spider silk after it came out of them, but that was discounted. They're just not sure how it was incorporated into their bodies to create it. Huh. So again, we find out a little more <laughs> about the mystery of spider silk, and we just end up with more questions. It is the great mystery. It is. Well, you know, um, we have one more study to uh, to mention here, and uh, and this one we feel really really drives home the the elegance of the design that we see here. Again, not only in the structure that they build, but the but the material that they build. Uh, and the varying takes on the material they build to construct it. Uh, the comparison here, spider silk and music, mm-hmm. the spidered web and, uh, and, and uh, you know, a, a, a classically arranged piece of music. Um, in particular, we're looking at a study from 2011. Uh, researchers at MIT, they created a scientifically rigorous analogy that shows the similarities between the physical structure structure of spider silk and the sonic structure of a melody, um, and taking it down, just stripping it down uh, to the building blocks of, of either an amino acid in the case of the webbing and a sound wave in the case of the music. 
Yeah, and it's got many different layers of sound and music to it in mm. this analogy. And the study explains that structural patterns are directly related to the functional properties. That's one layer of lightweight strength in the spider silk. And in the riff, sonic tension that creates an emotional response in the listener. Hmm. It's I, interesting to think of actually melody, music as spider webs, right? And the yeah. tension that's held within them and the structures, the repeating patterns. Yeah, it, it just, again, it drives home just the elegance of the design and just how, how nuanced it is. Um, I don't know if I'm going to start thinking of, of music I like as a spider web, uh, exactly, but uh, but but it's, it, it's, it's a wonderful analogy that they make and, and back up with data. Yeah, it's another way to look at... Um not Fibonacci, but symmetry and nature and the patterns held within. And not only that, uh, the communication, right? Because if you think about the spider web and the vibrations that it's giving off, mm-hmm. that perhaps is a kind of melody to the spider itself, telling it something about the pacing, something about the beat of the thing that's making it vibrate. Yeah, the sweet, sweet music of... Uh of, of a creature in agony uh, wrapped up in your web that you get to now go and uh, and wrap up some more and drain the life force from. That. Exactly. That's the song of the spider mm-hmm. right there. All right, so there you have it. Uh, spider silk. I hope that uh, I hope that that, uh, that you guys and gals listening uh, have more respect now for the spider and what it's doing. It's not just a silly string coming out of a spider's butt. It's... Uh, it, and it's not, uh, you know, spider web itself is not on par with just, you know, doing some cat's cradle stuff with uh, some string in your fingers. It, it, it's an engineering marvel at every level. If you would like to uh, learn more about this topic and others, uh, be sure to head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is where you'll find uh, podcasts, videos, blog posts, links out to social media accounts. And we'll make sure that we have uh, stuff on the landing page linking out to some wonderful resources, including the How Spiders Work article on HowStuffWorks.com, which gives you a... Just wonderful overview of uh, spider anatomy. If you have thoughts about the uh, cultural resonance of silkworms in China, or if you have thoughts about spider webs and silk used in biomedicine, particularly in your own body, or even what we were talking about with melodies and, and mm-hmm. the patterns of spider webs, please do share those thoughts with us. We'd love to hear from you. And you can email us at blowthemind@howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.